Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Thank you, and I'm, I'm absolutely amazed to see you here. I watched the weather all day and expected the university actually to cancel it. So, congratulations. Um, now, it's very nice to see you, particularly the people who come every week. And I think you must think it's a sort of poacher turned gamekeeper situation. Um, I'm here because I am so concerned uh, that Islam in this country is increasingly seen, or even exclusively seen, um, to be connected only with terrorism and violence. Um, I actually retired from the VNA 10 years ago when I decided I was getting too old to stand on drafty station platforms late at night, far from home. But when this situation developed, I decided that any of us who know anything about this subject should actually stand up and be counted. It's very, very sad that it is possible now to address a whole audience hall, um, and you know that everyone there will know so-called IS. But if you actually say, can you name one great Islamic building? And I'm afraid very often you're greeted with silence. And if you say, well, what about the Taj Mahal? And they, so often the comment is, oh, I had no idea it had anything to do with Islam. So that's where we are at the moment. Um, since this lecture is actually a lecture with a message, uh, and not just a, a straight arts lecture, I'm going to use my own slides instead of the um, rather bland professional slides, because my slides actually do go in the words of the Heineken advertisement uh, where others can't reach. So first to put is uh, so-called IS in context. Of course, it is the third great effort we've had of people determined to <clears throat> impose a doctrine by means of violence. It's the third we've had in the 20th and 21st century. We've had the Nazis, we've had the IRA, and now we have IS. And if you go further back, uh, you will find, for instance, the Spanish Inquisition, when the roles were reversed. We were the people who were actually um, burning Muslims at the stake. So unfortunately, this is a repeating phrase in, in history. Now, since in a short time it is difficult to cover such a huge subject, uh, I've decided to concentrate on the two most important um, arts to the nomad, that of gardening and architecture. We will look at the two great um, pieces of Islamic architecture, the uh, Registan Square in Samarkand and the Taj Mahal. Uh, and this will then enable me to touch on some of the decorative arts, uh, tile work, for instance, which is so important in Islam, uh, and also calligraphy, the most important art of all. But in the present circumstances, I think it's important to set the scene in terms of Islam, but I also think uh, it's important to try and explain why we are, unfortunately, so ignorant. Now, I'm going to start with a quote from Glub Pasha. Some of you may know him, the great soldier scholar. Uh, and he wrote a three 
volume, History of the Arab Conquests, and in it he said in the introduction, history, if it is to mean anything to us, must surely be an account of the development of the human race from its primitive beginnings to the present day and needs to be continuous. To learn a short period of Roman history and then jump to England in 1066 is to miss this concept. Yet, the great majority of people in Britain and the States have little knowledge of the Byzantine Empire or indeed the Arab conquests. To my mind, however, the story related in these books contain one of the principal keys to the understanding of the modern world in which Muslims are once more playing a prominent part. Now, the really chilling thing about that is Glub Pasha wrote that 50 years ago. And honestly, we weren't listening. So actually, some of the, some of the um, fault uh, for our ignorance lies at the door of the Victorians, because when they ruled the world, they set up our educational curricula. And whilst the Greeks were all right because they were pre-Christ, the Romans were definitely okay because they were converted. Islam was beyond the pale. And so they chose to leave it out altogether, and we are still paying the price for that today. Um, I met a diplomat once who had spent five years in Amman, and I said to him, what a wonderful opportunity to come to terms with Islam. And he said to me, what on earth has Islam ever done for the world? And my family will tell you it was one of the very rare occasions I was struck dumb. I was speechless. What I should have said to him is right. Without the influence of Islam through the Moors in Spain, you would be buying XXX 1V litres of petrol. I would be shopping with an abacus and there would be no computers. Because Islam's great gift to the West was, of course, the zero. But that wasn't all. Between the 11th and 13th centuries, uh, they gave us chemistry, astronomy, mathematics, recreational gardening, agriculture, zoology, and medicine. And European medicine actually didn't catch up with uh, Islamic medicine until the 17th century, as late as that. So it was that Islam laid the very strong and extensive foundation of civilization in the West. And yet, Sir Kenneth Clarke, who should have known better, produced that marvellous blockbuster for television, and he called it Civilization. And he did exactly what the Victorians did. He left out any mention of Islam. That means that he couldn't, when talking about all the greatest buildings in the world, he couldn't mention the Taj Mahal. So where are we now? Well, it's a very mixed picture, and I'm going to give you two examples to show you what I mean. The first is um, talking about the wonderful new museum in Doha. The emir of uh, Qatar decided he wished to collect Islamic art, and since he has deeper pockets than probably anyone else uh, in the world at the moment, um, he, he, he's, he collected a marvellous collection. To some extent, the V&A was damaged by this. Um, every museum has things lent to them, um, but if the 
market becomes buoyant. Uh, the person who owns them, of course, can sell them. And so some of the beautiful things we had in the V&A went to the, um, the museum in Qatar. So you've got a great collection. Um, the emir then decided that he wanted a great building, and he, he world-class, and he approached a world-class architect. He, he approached the Chinese-American architect, I.M. Pei, um, and I.M. Pei said no. He said, I'm really not prepared to design an, uh, a museum uh, that is going to be overshadowed by huge um, buildings, huge skyscrapers. Um, and, but he said, on the other hand, if you are prepared to make me a new island on reclaimed land, then I will, de I will design a museum. And that is exactly what was done. Uh, the museum sits on its own island off the coast of Doha. Right, world-class collection, world-class museum. You need a world-class first curator. And which Islamic building or which Islamic country did they go to? They didn't. Once again, the, the V&A, when I was there, lost out. We lost uh, Dr. Oliver Watson. He's now Professor Oliver Watson. He was our curator of ceramics and glass, and he went to be the first curator um, of the museum, the Doha Museum. Now, that gives you some idea of the level of, uh, of scholarship, uh, Islamic scholarship, in this country at the time. So, this was the pool that the BBC could um, delve into when they made that program, six programs on the Silk Route. But they didn't. Believe it or not, they employed, as a presenter, a marine architect, a man who designs boats. Not a skill you need a lot on the Silk Route. Uh, and unfortunately, he made some absolutely crass mistakes as a result. So you can see the picture is, is very confused. Right. Now, why is Islam so important? Well, they conquered all the lands between China and the Atlantic, helped, one has to say, seriously helped, by the exhaustion of the two superpowers who've been fighting each other, um, Persia and Byzantium. Um, but as a result, they came in contact with um, Greek literature and culture through Syrian translations in Egypt, the tradition of discussion from the Jews, Buddhism, from Chinese they got paper, and from India they got philosophy and mass. And all that came to us through the Moors in Spain. But we now face a very great danger. Uh, you have polarization. We in this country, as I've said, tend to think of Islam now as terrorism and violence. But what a lot of people here don't realize is in Islam, we are seen to be sex, drugs, and violence. And so there is a desperate need for both sides to talk. Right, Islam. The word means submitting oneself to the will of Allah. It's a religion based on the word of God as passed down 
um, to his prophet Muhammad. It's contained in the holy book, the Quran. And there's a second holy book, the Hadith, um, which contains the words and deeds of Muhammad himself. There are five pillars of Islam. Now, the first is the affirmation of faith, the words, there is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And the second is prayer, five times a day. Here, this is the great mosque in Mecca, and there is the Kaaba, or Kaaba, and all prayer is directed here. Um, I can neither spell or add up. Both fairies were absent at my christening. And so actually I envy Islam because there is no standardized either spelling or pronunciation. Um, the Kaaba or Kabar, uh, it, the tradition is that it holds a rock given by God uh, to Abraham. And just to show you how important directional prayer is, this is the great square in Isfahan. Uh, and unfortunately for Shah Abbas, the problem was that the end wall, this one, didn't face Mecca. So what he had to do was to make a mosque where you come in, you take a right angle turn, and then you are facing Mecca. And just as a digression, um, this is one of UNESCO at their most imaginative, because this great square was crumbling to bits. Uh, and Iran appealed to the United Nations for funds. And UNESCO said, yes, we'll give you some funds, but you have got to stop the cars going round the square. And so now cars are only allowed to go across the bazaar. This is the bazaar wall here. And if you want to go right round the square, you go in a horse-drawn carriage, which is very imaginative. Right, uh, prayer five times a day, dawn, noon, mid-afternoon, um, sunrise, and early evening. Uh, on a Friday, uh, it is congregational for the men. So the third great pillar is fasting. Now, uh, fasting at Ramadan, sunrise and to sunset. Um, and this is a terrible, terrible deprivation when Ramadan falls in the middle of the summer. Um, often um, it, it does because it is adjusted by the, it rotates adjusted from the cycles of the moon. Uh, and when the temperature's enormous, this is a real problem. Fourth is almsgiving, and the fifth is pilgrimage to Mecca. Muhammad was born in 520. He died in 632, but the important date in terms of Islam is 622, uh, which is where, where all their dates are dated from, the equivalent of our zero. So we are going to look at the art of... Oh, this is, just, uh, this is a close-up. Um, I just thought you'd like to see if, for instance, you're in the square here, and you go into the mosque, you then take a right-angle turn to be facing the right direction. Right, we're going to look at the art of the nomad. It has been said every art form carries a flavor of its national origin. Um, and as far as uh, Islam is concerned, it's an essential foundation and subtext of Islamic art. 
Uh, so what do we mean? Well, we mean that architecture, great architecture, is reserved for public buildings, uh, for palaces, mosques, and mausolea. Uh, on the other hand, you have great emphasis on textiles. This is because textiles provide them with their homes, their tents, and their furniture, um, carpets, and cushions. Uh, and this used to be a serious problem in the early 20th, 20th century, certainly, when you had um, diplomats going on a mission to a sheikh, because the diplomats were as uncomfortable sitting cross-legged as the sheikhs were sitting on a chair. Now, Islamic art is portable. So there's no tradition until recently of large ancestral portraits and no tradition of last, large freestanding um, statues. On the other hand, wonderful tradition of miniatures, um, wonderful glass, ceramics, and uh, metalware. Now, if you look here, although it's built of brick, uh, this caravanserai, this is, if you like, a hotel for people um, on the, who have a caravan, um, they couldn't get away from the... No, get back. They couldn't get away from the idiom of a tent. So, yeah, and how much more so if you go to this? This is the Abdul Aziz Airport at Jeddah. I believe it's the largest covered area in the world. And as you can see here again, you have the idiom of a tent. Now, nearly all Islamic art actually comes from an oasis of one sort or another. Uh, definition of noesis is a place in which to forget the austerities of the desert. And it was King Faisal, actually, who said, it is only the British who romanticise the desert. Um, there's an early writer who said, do we really understand what it is to be a descendant of a race, or at least a culture, which was founded on the experiences centuries ago of thirsty men who were occasionally obliged to drink the brackish mud of desert wells, living flat, lying flat on their stomachs. So, this is the Sheikh Nimatullah Shrine, um, right down in the south of Iran. Um, and I can promise you, you have no idea how it raises the spirits to come here after you've travelled for hour after tedious hour after dusty hour in even an air-conditioned coach. How much more so if you've been travelling month by month by month? And who but Islam, when they found one small spring in the middle of the desert, would actually build a garden? So if we go inside... It is a paradise garden. What do we mean? Well, actually, it's a garden of the senses, but it greatly predates uh, Islam. The Bible said um, a river went out of e the Eden to water the garden, and from thence was parted and became four heads. Uh, the Quran says many branches, spreading shade, unfailing fruits, fountains of running water, and cool pavilions. And the first paradise garden that's documented was built by Cyrus the Great in 401 BC. Um, it, paradise, the paradise, the word paradise comes from paradiesa, old Alvastam, which was the language that Christ spoke. Um, and it is an enclosure or a park. Right. This is Babur, the great um, emperor 
who's Persian. He swept down from Central Asia, uh, conquered northern India, set up the Mughal dynasty. And here you have ele every element of a paradise garden. You have a wall for privacy retreat to keep the desert out. Uh, it is a Chaha Bagh. It's divided into four. And you have a cascade here. Oh, dear. No, sorry. You have a cascade. Let me go back. You have a cascade here. And the water in a square tank. Water is much too precious in Islam uh, for it to be allowed to go where it wants like it does in our gardens. It is nearly always confined. But the whole is a, a reflection of paradise. And actually, Babur, when on one occasion, went up to Kashmir to find the ideal place for a garden, and he built the big and famous Shalimar garden. And when he died, he left instructions that his grave was to be open to the sky, no building over it, no need for a doorkeeper. Before the trouble started, um, they were worried that it was being damaged by the weather to some extent, and so they put a very light fabric cover over it. But we don't actually know now whether it exists at all. So, water. None of us can live without water, but to an Islamic architect uh, in a garden, water poses as great a, a design challenge with sunlight, as domes, portals, tile screens do in a building. And its importance is on two levels, spiritual and practical. And of course, water affects all five senses, sight, sound, touch, smell, and taste. But above all, how much more so in the context, the context of great heat? It is the single most important element uh, in the lives of a desert nomad in a way that we actually can't appreciate. Um, you could say from time to time we are tyrannized by water here. Um, and in fact, there was a lovely story of a sheikh uh, who came over here and the foreign office were very anxious to make love to him. Uh, and they booked him in for five days in Glen Eagles, in the great hotel in Scotland, and they had five days of unremitting rain. Uh, and the FO was de desperately worried because the man never came out of his room. But when he did, he said just watching the rain was the most wonderful five days of his life. Um, in Islam, no garden is a garden without water. So some of our flowery meads, in fact, wouldn't qualify. But on the other hand, if you have just a tree with a pool below, they do uh, regard that as a garden. Now, can I read you from Earthly Paradise? This is a wonderful book written by Jonas Lehrman. And he says, water invites approach, remains of continuing and absorbing interest, and throughout the Islamic world has been treated with consummate skill. It's been made straight-edged, runs in marble channels, fills bars and fish ponds. It flows over waterfalls, speeds down chutes, and sprays the air from fountains. But it can also be still when the flat surface of a pool is strewn with rose petals, or when at night it bears candles adrift on tiny rafts. So if water is that important, where do you get it from? Now, this is a thing called a canat. 
um, invented 2,000 years ago. And what they do is they drop a, um, a shaft down 150 feet, and then with a very, very low gravity fall, they will carry it many, many miles in, in a channel four to five feet in diameter. And what looks like elephant feet there are, in fact, the inspection channels, which are every 30 to 40 yards. Um, I'm not sure, but I believe that, to some extent, Tehran is still, um, is still served by canots. So, all right, they've got the water. What are they going to do with it? Well, this is one of the most beautiful, I think. This is Kashmir. Um, and it is the gateway to the Nishad Bag uh, Garden. You come across the, across the lake here. This is Lake Nagin. You come on, in your shikara, your lovely little um, boat, and you come through the gateway and up to here. Now, there is the gateway. And that shows you that all this is man-made purely to construct the gateway. The garden was a dis disappointment when I was there because it was designed to be gravity-fed, all the water, and all it needed was maintenance. So, a chadol. This is a word for a shawl, um, and here again, this obsession with textiles. And what they do is they carve the brickwork underneath the water in all different patterns, and then this is the effect. So it looks like a shawl, even to the fringing uh, at the bottom. And how much more textiles, again, this is intended to look like a Persian carpet uh, that is actually floating uh, on the river below the amber fort in Jaipur. Yes, this is a, a small pool in Friday Mosque. Now, Islam does not like clear water. They believe that if you cannot see the bottom, that you can believe that you're looking at infinity. Uh, and the other thing that is important, which you can only just see here, is the reflection. But here, you can see it even better. This is called the Chetal Sutun, and that means 40 columns. And that tells you that the great tank you can see in the front there was an integral part of the original design. Um, so you've got 20 columns in the kiosk uh, and 20 columns in the reflection. If you're going to be thoroughly pedantic, in fact, the kiosk only has 19 columns. <laughs> right, and the Taj Mahal, as you've never seen it before, probably, uh, it has a canal and a pool, and it is intended to have the reflection of the uh, Taj when the fountains, that you can see here, are not running. Now, I need you to use your imagination. This is the great tank in the Red Fort uh, in Delhi. Um, and all of these, ch these openings should be filled with scintillating, sparkling water just to make a frame uh, to the tank. Yeah, and the Chinikana. Um, I was leading a British Museum tour here, and we were fantastically late. So I couldn't wait until this naughty little girl had got out of the way before taking this photograph. Um, and to my fury, afterwards, her husband, her husband, her father, 
who is in the background there, uh, came over and demanded money for taking a picture of his daughter's backside. And I have to say, it was only the greatest self-control that prevented me from telling him she shouldn't have been climbing up in the first place, um, because it was, after all, his country and not mine. Right, now, what, what is a chinicana? Well, here you have a, a sheet of water that comes over and into this kidney-shaped pool here. And at the time of the moguls, all those openings would be filled during the day with flowers and at night with candles. And to show you how it's done, this is a larger one. <coughs> here you can see the sheet of water on the, on the left, and they could get in at dawn and dusk uh, to do the change. And if you were lucky enough to be the great mogul, this is where you sat in the Shalimar Gardens. And all the fountains, all these knobs you can see, would be playing. And he would be sitting here on silken cushions and carpets. And, of course, it would affect all his senses. Taste, he could taste the water, feel it, see it, smell it, and hear it. So what about flowers? Well, in Islam, they are non-essential. They are very much uh, enjoyed. They, they are very precious, but they are non-essential. And this is infuriating as far as I'm concerned. This is Shiraz. Shiraz, the home of roses and nightingales. Uh, and this was a banksia rose growing up a house. Uh, I was trying at this time very hard to grow a banksia rose here without any success at all. And so I was infuriated to see uh, this. If you have um, an apricot, orange-coloured rose in your garden, it will have originated from Shiraz. And I put this in just to show you that um, the women, the women who make carpets, uh, are actually, they take their design from what is right outside their front door. This is the desert, when the desert flowers. And there are some Pasha mosque. If you ever go to Istanbul, it is enchanting. It is, does, is thought to have the best tile work uh, in Islam. Uh, it's tiny. It's actually upstairs. Um, and it has beautiful tiles. And this is how hyacinths should be. Not the overdeveloped knobs that, they, that the stem really can't hold up. This is how a hyacinth should be. But tulips came from here too, but I don't think they ever looked... Whoops, sorry. I don't think they ever looked like that. So, I put this in just to show you. Uh, flowers are important. Lovely panel of blue and white with the flowers actually in um, a vase. And once again, I need you to use your imagination. This is actually my favourite um, Islamic garden, built, oddly enough, by a Mughal general. It's a garden of contemplation, and you have here a kiosk where you sit. You now will understand that this is a chud door, so you'd have the sound of water, but also you would understand by now the water doesn't go straight into the pool, which is impossible to photograph. Um, it goes underground, so it doesn't disturb the reflection of the trees. Hard architecture, and just this one little feature. What is it? It enables the water, when it leaves the garden, to be pure. This is to purify it. It's filled with sand. The water runs over the sand. 
and leaves the garden pure. So, tile work. And I'm going to have a look at probably the most common pattern in Islam. The, this is the star pattern. Um, and you get it in all, uh, in all forms. It has been described as complexity without confusion. Uh, and when I trained, I was told that they were able to make these amazing patterns by a, a really fantastic knowledge of geometry. Now, uh, academe tells us that these are done freehand. I, I find it very, very difficult to believe. Um, I'm going to show you a number of these patterns. But first, I want to show you the tools. They only use these three tools to cut things like curves and tiny, tiny pieces. If any of you tried to tile your kitchen or your bathroom, you'll know it is fantastically difficult to cut glazed tile. Right, this is another star pattern. They have the ability to construct a complicated and ordered design in all mediums. Textiles, ceramics, woodwork, stucco, and marble. Um, so you get this endly repeated decorative and elaborate patterns on domes, minarets, book covers, carpets, embroideries, and paintings. Another one, these are all in the Alhambra. Um, Islamic art is pan-Islamic. That means it is from country to country. You get the same designs, building to building, object to object, uh, and century to century. And it is actually this star design that IMP has decided to use in the entrance hall of the new museum in Doha. Why? Why is it pan-Islamic? And the answer is because of the way Islam values their craftsmen. Their craftsmen are mobile. Um, and in fact, Tamerlane, charmingly, when he, he uh, raised a town to the ground, the only people he would save would actually be the craftsmen. Now, I wanted to show you that it's not only... Oops. It's not, um, it's not only amazing design... It is amazing how they do it, because this is mosaic. This is not these big um, patterns that you can go into a tile shop and buy, and the pattern's right across four or five tiles. Not at all. Every single one of these tiny, tiny pieces has been individually cut and set into the design. Um, what are we looking at? It is actually... A glazed brick or, or frit. Um, it can be pul it's pulverized quartz, the glaze, mixed either with lead to make a lead glaze or tin for a tin glaze. Blue and green are holy colours, water and sky. Um, on the whole, the best tiles appear in countries that build in brick um, rather than uh, in. Mobile, uh, marble, and the first glazed tile appeared in the 12th century um, uh, <coughs> in, in, uh, on the dome of the rock. Right. 
I put this in to show you it is not only tile work that is complexity without confusion. This is um, a tomb uh, in Isfahan, and actually this is all about calligraphy. Calligraphy you always read from right to left. This is a calligraphic inscription running across, but this is also something called horror vacui. In Islam or desert dwellers, open spaces are very frightening. Um, and so in Islamic art, you will not have large spaces. You have wonderful organization of space, but you don't have large empty spaces. So what, what they've done is that they have actually overput this foliate design and then even more so, there is a vine, a circular vine design as well. Uh, all horror vacui. So two kinds of, two main kinds of calligraphy. Uh, this is the earlier one, Kufic, um, <clears throat> 11th century. And this is definitely uh, better for um, mosaic and for cutting. Um, first seen in the 10th, 11th century. Now, calligraphy is regarded as the most important art of all. Calligraphers, the most um, supreme craftsmen. This is because it carries the word of God. So you've got a major ornamental role. Um, it's used extensively in bands to emphasize and separate. It may explain something of the building, like perhaps the donor. On a call to pray, the call to prayer on a minaret, uh, and, but the most common source of all are, of course, um, <clears throat> verses from the Quran. So this is the earlier one, and this also appeared on the uh, dome of the rock. And this is what they can do with it. Now here you've got the Kufic design running up and down here, and then they've got this big space. So what do they do? They actually plait the long letters. So in our text, it would be Ds or Bs. Um, and so they take the long letters and they plait them. And where perhaps they haven't got one that they need, they'll actually put one in. But this is all about horror vacui. Cursive. Cursive is, is the, uh, the calligraphy they use today. And here you see you've got a big white cursive design. You can see here how difficult it is uh, with curves to when, you're, you, when it is mosaic. They then had the big space above, and what do we do? So they put in another um, band of calligraphy. And for most people, that would be enough, not for Islam. This is horror vacui again. At the back, you can see you've got a foliate design. And they can plait it. This is a particularly beautiful um, panel of cursive, plaited cursive. So you can see they've taken the long letters and made this design in the middle. Right, we are now going to Samarkand. And this is the Gurumir, Sam um, Tamerlane's tomb. It was actually built uh, for his, his son. 
uh, his grandson, actually, no, his grandson, who was his designated heir, uh, who unfortunately died before uh, Tamerlane. He was called Mohammed Sultan. Um, and in the end, Tamerlane, his sons and grandsons were all buried here. Lovely, swelling Islamic dome uh, and calligraphy here. This is a close-up. And the calligraphy, calligraphy, which is below here, says, God is immortal. Now, extraordinarily, this is also calligraphy. It's a very rare form of calligraphy. Um, and oddly enough, this here looks like a double L. It is actually the, the motive for Allah. But of course, they read from right to left, so it isn't. Um, but it, do, it does look as, if, to us, it does look as though it is. This is the wall of his tomb. Now, I have to say, um, <laughs> when I was there, it was in the time of the Soviets, and nothing would persuade them to allow you to photograph the tomb, uh, which I, I very much approve of. But I'm sorry to say that now, under the present regime, um, you will, if you watched the Silk Route, you will have seen that the BBC were able to bribe their way to take a photograph of the tomb. Now, um, Tamerlane left instructions that it was only to be a stone with his name on it. It is indeed only a snow stone with his name on it, but it is the most beautiful dark green jade. Now, there was a superstition... If Tamerlane's body was, was ever disturbed, a greater catastrophe than any he himself had wrought would overwhelm the world. Now, you can imagine the Soviets were not in the least bit interested in superstitions, and so they decided to open the tomb. And they opened the tomb on June the 22nd, 1941, the date that the Germans invaded Russia. Be careful of your superstitions. Right, we're going to go to the main square in uh, Samarkand, the Registan. Um, Samarkand means a sandy marketplace. There are eight radial roads that come into Samarkand through eight gates. Six, sorry, six gates. I'm exaggerating. Um, it's on the confluence of the Oxus and the Serafshan, and it's on the Silk Road, two um, bits, one that goes down to India and the other to the Caspian. Now, we're looking here at three great teaching madrasas, mosques. And Lord Curzon said, I know of nothing in the East approaching it in massive simplicity and grandeur, and nothing in Europe, save on a humbler scale, the Piazza San Marco in Venice, which can even aspire to enter the competition at all. No European uh, spectacle, indeed, can adequately be compared with it in our inability to point to an open space in any Western city that is commanded on three of its four sides by Gothic cathedrals of the finest order. So these are three great teaching, uh, teaching mosques. Um, Ulugh Beg, we're not going to look at. It's been very, very seriously... Um, over-restored, uh, 1417. We are going to look at Sherdor, the one here, which means bearing tigers, and also the one at the back, um, which means adorned in gold, the tilakari adorned in gold. 
So let's have a look at the shared door. Now, this is a great Iwan in the name of um, an opening like this. And this is where our Gothic cathedrals come from. This is where we got an idea of the arch. Now, over the top is a tiger chasing a deer. <coughs> the most common mis misunderstanding about, um, about Islamic art you will hear over and over again is Islam does not allow representation of living things. That is such rubbish. Because what about all the wonderful tradition of miniatures where you have the mogul sitting with his harem or going to war or going hunting? Um, they are less comfortable with living things on a religious building. But even here, you can see there are exceptions. Well, this poor man who was presenting the Silk Road, believe it or not, he actually stood here and he said Islam does not allow representation of living things. It was a complete non sequitur, complete non sequitur. So let's go into it. Uh, two lovely domes inside. And again, if you've tried to get a tile to adhere, uh, try doing it on a curved surface, curved left to right and top to bottom. Amazing what they can do with, with tiles. And this is the minaret. Allah, here. And I'll show you this to show you just how limited the palette is. Blue, black, white, and unglazed bricks. This is what they're able to do with it. Extraordinary complexity without <coughs> confusion. And here you've got Allah, of course, the ubiquitous Allah all the time. Now, this is five-star accommodation, if you like. The, each of these was a room for one of the uh, students. And uh, the other enchanting little dome. And then down to the Tilakari. Beautiful blue dome, very typical of this part of the country. And uh, more five-star student accommodation. And then this. Now you look at this and you cannot actually believe it's humanly possible. Here they've got five rods, each with a different pattern on them. And as if that isn't difficult enough, they then take them and take them up in a barley sugar twist. It's, it is tile work that just seems humanly impossible. The Tilakari, now you can see why it's called adorned in gold. And you can also see the, um, the bands of calligraphy, some where you can see the blue, some where the calligraphic inscription is so dense you can't see the blue. But actually everything in is uh, calligraphy. This is very stylized calligraphy. Um, <clears throat> and again, this shows you how limited the palette is. They had the blue, but only silver and gold glazed tiles and unglazed tiles. <laughs> This is when my camera said, oh, you really can't be serious when I try to take a picture of the dome. So it actually only gives you a small impression. And so we move on to the Taj. 
The Taj did not actually appear out of nowhere. It was the last in a long line um, of Mughal tombs. And this is the Hurun Minar, 1607, built by Jahangir, the fourth great Mughal. And he built it as a memorial to his pet deer. Now, in Agra, there are two white tombs. Uh, this is the Itamada Dala, um, built by Nur Jahan. Now, Nur Jahan came from a, an amazing Persian family. She built this for her father, um, Mirza Geir Steg was his name. Um, and she was the wife of the fourth great mogul. She was the de facto mogul because he was both a drug addict and a drunk. Uh, and she built this for her father. Well, that actually would be enough for most people. But in fact, it was her niece or her father's granddaughter who married this man, Shah Jahan. <coughs> Shah Jahan built the Taj Mahal when his beloved wife died, giving him his 14th child. Now, I've got two very odd slides um, taken from the air because I wanted to show you how the, the Taj Mahal sits actually not in the middle of the garden, but at the edge with the river behind it. And that is absolute rubbish. Um, I've said it so many times, and I wonder whether Shah Shahan was turning in his grave, because we now know, because the Indian government have demolished all the factories that were here and were belching terrible smoke over the Taj, we now know that this, this tomb was in the middle of the Islamic the Paradise Garden, because the garden actually extends over the other side uh, of the river. So, the entrance. And this is so clever, really, because it's largely red sandstone with details of white marble. And so that greatly enhances the effect when you go through the gateway uh, to see this. Now, G.H.R. Tillerson is uh, an expert on Mughal architecture, and he said, the Taj Mahal transcends all the wildest fantasies about the East. For genies and magic carpets are mere banalities, besides its sublime, incandescent loveliness. So let's just analyze it. You've got a big Iwan, a big entrance, and then two smaller ones, each side, and two each side on the corners. You've got a large Islamic swelling dome. These small domes are Hindu. And then you have these four offset minarets. And they are what makes the Taj so utterly beautiful. Because look at this. If that's what you saw, it wouldn't be the stunning building that it is. Now, I think nearly everyone who ever goes to see the Taj um, has seen a picture of it. Um, either on a postcard or a biscuit tin or in a book or whatever. So the thing that actually rocks you back on your heels is not the image of the Taj, it is its size. It is colossal. It's 240 foot tall and 186 feet across. Um, and if that doesn't mean anything much to you, it wouldn't to me. If you take this Iwan, it's the big one, this one is smaller, and that little brown dot is actually the door. So look at this. 
No, sorry. Look at this. Now, this is a small Iwan here. And look at the size of the people. The Taj is absolutely colossal. Right, so it has a pool. Uh, and as you would expect from the pool, look at the corner, which is beautifully carved. The two bridesmaids, uh, one is a mosque, the other is a guest house. And were they anywhere else, they would be very beautiful buildings. But as it is, they're really completely eclipsed by the bride. Um, as I said, large Islamic swelling dome with a lotus top. Chatris, these are chatris, these little ones. Um, they are Hindu, which is an indication that Shah Jahan actually was interested in other religions. And the Taj Mahal is, designed, is decorated with what we call pietra dura. Um, this is a technique uh, painting pictures with semi-precious stones um, invented by the Italians. And when the British first arrived in India, um, they decided that uh, the Indian craftsmen couldn't possibly have done this, that the Italians must have been invited over uh, to help, but they weren't. Um, <clears throat> here. Crown Imperial, some of you may have them in your garden, and it is intended to look as though it's growing. White marble, again, these are intended to be look as though they're in little mounds of soil. And I couldn't resist taking this because it looks exactly like our dog, but red sandstone. And the screen. This is another, you, you really can't believe that it can be humanly possible to carve marble so finely, just like lace. Although the tomb itself is actually quite simple. Yes, there are three things that enable us to enjoy the Taj today. The first obviously is Islamic art. The second is Hindu craftsmanship. But the third is British appreciation and restoration. Um, Lord Curzon became Viceroy in, uh, <clears throat> in 1899 until 1905. And he said, if I've never done anything else here in India, I have written my name here. Uh, he was the first to acknowledge that India boasted the most glorious galaxy of monuments and the world, uh, in the world, and that their maintenance was a, was a responsibility uh, of the imperial government. Now, unfortunately, before he arrived, there was a custom that you went and had a picnic in the grounds of the Taj Mahal. And when you had had your picnic, you took out your penknife and you dug out the inlay. The inlay was carnelian, onyx, jasper, coral, amethyst, lapis lazuli, and jade. Right. Now, the Taj is white marble, but of course it takes up the color uh, of the time of day and the climate. And so I'm going to show you a series of slides where you can see how this happens.
This is the lavender targe. This is definitely not a trick of photography. If the climate is right, you do occasionally get this wonderful lavender targe. Right, <clears throat> a thought. <clears throat> Does the universally acknowledge great beauty of the Taj help to obscure the fact that it is an Islamic building? And how many people are unaware that there is a direct connection between so-called IS and the Taj Mahal? But I want to finish with the words of Rudyard Kipling. Rudyard Kipling said the Taj Mahal is the ivory gateway through which all dreams pass. Thank you very much. <clears throat>